With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, episode 58. This week, it's a little sad. It's a little worrying. It could affect people who listen to this podcast. But our lead story is entitled, Male Science Nerds, Most Likely to be Virgins, an Australian study has found. Also in this podcast... An ancient city is discovered deep in the Amazonian rainforest and humans could be 80,000 years older than previously thought. From the Daily Galaxy, scientists begin to decode whales speak and supersonic plumes of water erupt from Saturn's moon. And a story to affect the Australian listeners? Arthritis is killing our cane toads. Those stories and lots more on this week's episode of Origins, number 58.
I've always considered myself a bit of a science nerd and always had a bit of a laugh at the science nerd who's depicted in the movies and the sitcoms as the bespeckled, short-haired, skinny guy who's a virgin at a ridiculously late age, like 35, 40 years old, and everyone thought that these characters didn't really exist, but according to this study, they might actually exist. Oh my god, I'd better look back at my photos from my university days. Maybe I was one of them. And from the telegraph.co.uk website, an Australian study into the sexual history of 185 students at the University of Sydney found male science nerds were the least likely to have had sexual intercourse. And this is by Bonnie Marlin. At the other end of the spectrum, female art students ranked as the most sexually active. The study of 16 to 25-year-olds, published in the journal Sexual Health, said males in the study were less likely to have had sex as a group compared to the group of females in the sample. Science students were also less likely to have had sex compared to their counterparts in other faculties. Sydney-based psychotherapist Stephen Carroll said cultural factors would have played a role in the results because many international students come to Australia to study science. Boys also start having sex later than girls, Dr Carroll said. The work ethic of science students and their devotion to the lab kept them out of environments where they would meet women, he said. And who are the people at unis that go to the rave parties in the bar? It's not the nerdy boy science students. They're carrying on doing their experiments, going to the library or doing their assignments. However, the findings have been vigorously disputed by male science graduates. Dr Chris Gonora, who studied science for three years, denied the subject put an end to all romantic pursuits. Although we may have been a little nerdier than the other students, Let's just say the gender ratio wasn't as bad as engineering, he said. More female students, 78%, than male, 22%, agreed to take part in the survey. The study also charted student knowledge of the sexually transmitted disease, chlamydia. Researcher Melissa Kang had previously found that infection rates in women aged 20 to 24 quadrupled from 335 cases per 100,000 people in 1999 to 1,300 per 100,000 people last year. Well, there you go, girls. It's much safer to have sex with a science nerd. Much less chance of getting a sexually transmitted disease. Anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I found this article on the scienceblogs.com website and it's entitled Thousands of New Species Discovered on a Tiny Island and it's by Benny Blyman. 
An expedition to a tiny island in the South Pacific's Republic of Vanuatu has yielded hundreds of new species, possibly including 1,000 new species of crab. 153 scientists from 20 countries participated in the survey of Espiritu Santu in the South Pacific, scouring caves, mountains, reefs, shallows and forests collecting species. Out of over 10,000 species collected, the researchers are predicting that as many as 2,000 may be previously unknown to the scientific community. Some pictures from the National Geographic story are on this website, and if there's a link here as well if you want to read more information. But I encourage you to go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 58, because some of the creatures are quite amazing, and being National Geographic photos, the photos are of a really high quality. And coming up in a few moments, I have two stories from archaeology. The first is from the dailymail.co.uk website, and it's about an ancient city discovered deep in the Amazonian rainforest. And the second one is about humans being 80,000 years older than previously thought. A lost city discovered deep in the Amazon rainforest could unlock the secrets of a legendary tribe. Little is known about the Cloud People of Peru, an ancient white-skinned civilization wiped out by disease and war in the 16th century. But now archaeologists have uncovered a fortified citadel in a remote mountainous area of Peru known for its isolated natural beauty. It is thought this settlement may finally help historians unlock the secrets of the white warriors of the clouds. The tribe had white skin and blonde hair, features which intrigue historians, as there is no known European ancestry in the region where most inhabitants are darker skinned. The citadel is tucked away in one of the most far-flung areas of the Amazon, It sits at the edge of a chasm which the tribe may have used as a lookout to spy on enemies. The main encampment is made up of circular stone houses overgrown by jungle over 12 acres, according to archaeologist Benedict Perez. Rock paintings cover some of the fortifications and next to the dwellings are platforms believed to have been used to grind seeds and plants for food and medicine. The Cloud People once commanded a vast kingdom stretching across the Andes to the fringes of Peru's northern Amazon jungle before it was conquered by the Incas. Named because they lived in rainforests filled with cloud-like mist, the tribe later sided with the Spanish colonialists to defeat the Incas. But they were killed by epidemics of European diseases such as measles and smallpox. Much of their way of life 
dating back to the 9th century, was also destroyed by pillaging, leaving little for archaeologists to examine. Remains have been found before, but scientists have high hopes of the latest find, made by an expedition to the Jamaica district in Peru's Utcubamba province, about 500 miles northeast of the capital Lima. Until recently, much of what was known about the lost civilization was from Inca records. Even the name they call themselves is unknown. The term, Chachapoyas or cloud people, was given to them by the Incas. Their culture is best known for the Kulap Fortress, on top of a mountain in Utcubamba, which can only be compared in scale to the Inca's Machu Picchu retreat, built hundreds of years later. Two years ago, archaeologists found an underground burial vault inside a cave with five mummies, two intact with skin and hair. Chachapoyas chronicler Pedro Cies de Leon wrote of the tribe, They are the whitest and most handsome of all the people that I have seen, and their wives were so beautiful that because of their gentleness, many of them deserved to be the Inca's wives and to also be taken to the Sun Temple. The women and their husbands always dressed in woolen clothes and in their heads they wear their lotos or woolen turban, which are a sign they wear to be known everywhere. The Chachapoyas' territory was located in the northern regions of the Andes in present-day Peru. It encompassed the triangular region formed by the confluence of the Moranan and Utcubamba rivers in the zone of Bagua up to the basin of the Abizio River. The Moranan's size and the mountainous terrain meant that the region was relatively isolated. And our second article comes from the nationalgeographic.com news website, and it's by Kate Revilius. Humans 80,000 years older than previously thought? Modern humans may have evolved more than 80,000 years earlier than previously thought, according to a new study of sophisticated stone tools found in Ethiopia. The tools were uncovered in the 1970s, at the archaeological site of Gadamotta, in the Ethiopian Rift Valley. But it was not until this year that new dating techniques revealed the tools to be far older than the oldest known Homo sapien bones, which are around 195,000 years old. Using argon-argon dating, a technique that compares different isotopes of the element argon, Researchers determined that the volcanic ash layers entombing the tools at Gadamotta date back at least 276,000 years. Many of the tools found are small blades, made using a technique that is thought to require complex cognitive abilities and nimble fingers, according to study co-author and Berkeley Geochronology Centre director Paul René. Some archaeologists believe that these tools and similar ones found elsewhere are associated with the emergence of the modern human species, Homo sapiens. It seems that we were technologically more advanced at an earlier time than we had previously thought, 
said study co-author Lee Morgan from the University of California, Berkeley. The findings are published in the December issue of the journal Geology. Gautamotta was an attractive place for people to settle due to its close proximity to fresh water in Lake Ziwe and access to a source of hard black volcanic glass known as obsidian. Due to its lack of crystalline structure, obsidian glass is one of the best raw materials to use for making tools, Morgan explained. In many parts of the world, archaeologists see a leap around 300,000 years ago in Stone Age technology, from the large and crude hand axes and pixes of the so-called Acheulean period to the more delicate and diverse points and blades of the Middle Stone Age. At other sites in Ethiopia, such as Herto in the Afar region northeast of Gadamotta, the transition does not occur until much later, around 160,000 years ago, according to Argon dating. This variety in dates supports the idea of a gradual transition in technology. A modern analogy might be the transition from ox carts to automobiles, which is virtually complete in North America and Northern Europe, but is still underway in the developing world, says study co-author René. Morgan of UC Berkeley speculates that the readily available obsidian at Gadamotta may explain why the technological revolution occurred so early there. The lack of bones at Gadamotta makes it difficult to determine who made these specialised tools. Some archaeologists believe it had to be Homo sapiens, while other experts think that the other human species may have had the required mental capability and manual dexterity. Regardless of who made the tools, the dates help to fill a key gap in the archaeological record, according to some experts. The new dates from Gautamotta help us to understand the timing of an important behavioural change in human evolution, said Christian Tryon, a professor of anthropology from New York University, who wasn't involved in the study. If anything, the story has now become more complex, added Lorda Basil, an archaeologist at the University of Oxford in the UK. The new date for Gadamotta changes how we think about human evolution because it shows how much more complicated the situation is than we previously thought, Basil said. It is not possible to simply associate specific species with particular technologies and plot them in a line from archaic to modern. And now on to a story with an Australian theme, and this comes from the telegraph.co.uk website. Arthritis is killing Australia's cane toads. It seems a bad back might be the only thing that can stop the relentless spread of Australia's poisonous cane toads, which are killing native animals as they hop across the nation, researchers say. Australia's army couldn't stop the cane toads, which number around 200 million. Residents swinging golf clubs failed, and so did a campaign to freeze them to death in refrigerators. But now an Australian scientist says evolution has seen the biggest and fastest cane toads interbreed, resulting in arthritis and bad backs, which could slow them down. 
Cane toads moving across Australia are the fastest amphibians on Earth after their rapid evolution from slow-moving homebodies into road warriors over the past 70 years, Rick Shine at the Sydney University said. Thousands of cane toads moving in a front across tropical eastern Queensland can travel 10 metres or about 30 feet overnight, researchers say. Those at the front of the invasion near the Western Australian state border can cover over one kilometre on a wet night, 100 times the distance. Toads that run at the front of the pack are becoming bigger and faster. They have different personalities, different shapes and are developing different physiologies, said Mr Shine. The bigger, faster toads produce babies with bigger front legs and longer backs and consequently suffer arthritis. We are seeing toads in the Northern Territory with spinal arthritis, big bony lumps on their spine, said Mr Shine. Cane toads are one of Australia's worst environmental mistakes, ranking alongside the catastrophic introduction of rabbits. The toads, introduced in a batch of 101 from Hawaii in 1935 in a failed bid to control native cane beetles, have spread 3,000 kilometres or about 1,900 miles from northeast Queensland to Darwin in Australia's tropical north. The spread of the toad, whose skin is poisonous, has led to dramatic declines in populations of native snakes, goanna lizards and quolls, a cat-sized marsupial. And you'll be pleased to know that I'm doing my little bit to remove the cane toad scourge from here in Queensland, Australia. Each night as I drive down the road and notice a couple of cane toads sitting on the road, I happily squash them with my 215x60x16 tyres on my Subaru. And they do make a lovely popping sound. And from the dailygalaxy.com, scientists begin to decode whale speak. Cetaceans are known to be among the most clever and intelligent of all mammals. They have brains that are roughly the same size as humans or larger, which are similarly or superiorly complex, although differently evolved in structure. This has led some marine biologists to speculate that whales and other cetaceans could be as intelligent as humans, and may even have several unknown communicative abilities that surpass our current understanding through sonar and other means. Critics say that if cetaceans were as smart as us, there'd be more evidence of it. But what type of evidence would suffice? The fact that cetaceans are suffering from, rather than creating, the kind of environmental suicide that humans indulge in is not necessarily proof of inferiority. It is known that the prehistoric predecessors of cetaceans were land animals who returned to the sea where there was relatively little fear of large predators and an abundant food supply. 
Dolphins and whales appear to have rich communicative powers among themselves and are very playful. It is also known that dolphins can use tools and teach their children how to use tools. Dolphins are one of the few animals other than humans known to mate for pleasure rather than strictly for reproduction. They form strong bonds with each other which leads them to stay with their injured and sick. Dolphins also display protective behaviour towards humans by keeping them safe from sharks for example. Now Australian scientists studying humpback whale sounds say they have begun to decode the whale's mysterious communication system. They said they've already identified male pickup lines as well as motherly warnings. Scientists from the University of Queensland working on the Humpback Whale Acoustic Research Collaboration or the HARC project are trying to break the mysterious communication systems of whales. Whale song is said to be audible to other whales halfway across the planet. But what do all their melodic squeaks, moans, grumbles and singing mean? The scientists have begun recording some of the whale's extensive repertoire in an effort to answer that very question. Recording whale sounds over a three-year period, scientists discovered at least 34 different types of whale calls with data published in the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America. I was expecting to find maybe 10 different social vocalisations, but in actual fact found 34. It's just such a wide, varied repertoire, University of Queensland researcher Rebecca Dunlop told Reuters. The researchers studied migrating east humpback whales as they travelled up and down Australia's east coast and recorded 660 sounds from 61 different groups. Dunlop says some of the sounds recorded could have multiple meanings, depending on how they are grouped, for example, but some sounds appear to have one clear meaning, such as the purr sound from males ready to try their luck with an available female. High-frequency screams were associated with disagreements. A WAP sound was common when mothers were together with their young. The WAP was probably one of the most common sounds I heard, probably signifying a mum-calf contact call, said Dunlop. Perhaps something like, Junior, Junior, get over here now. Dunlop says there are clear similarities with human interaction. It's quite fascinating that they're obviously marine mammals, they've been separated from terrestrial mammals for a long, long time, but yet still seem to be following the same basic communication system, she said. The scientists are hoping that further research on the subject will reveal more of their mysterious language and what effects boats and man-induced sonar are having on migrating whales. And while we're hanging about in the water, there's an article by Jasper Copping, and it's entitled, Ocean Currents Can Power the World, Say Some Scientists. 
A revolutionary device that can harness energy from slow-moving rivers and ocean currents could provide enough power for the entire world. The technology can generate electricity in water flowing at a rate of less than one knot, or about one mile an hour, meaning it could operate on most waterways and seabeds around the world. Existing technologies which use water power, relying on the action of waves, tides or faster currents created by dams, are far more limited in where they can be used and also cause greater obstructions when they are built in rivers or the sea. Turbines and watermills need an average current of five or six knots to operate efficiently, while most of the Earth's currents are slower than three knots. The new device, which has been inspired by the way fish swim, consists of a system of cylinders positioned horizontal to the water flow and attached to springs. As the water flows past, the cylinder creates vortices, which push and pull the cylinder up and down. The mechanical energy in the vibrations is then converted into electricity. Cylinders arranged over a cubic metre of the sea or riverbed in a flow of three knots can produce 51 watts. This is more efficient than similar sized turbines or wave generators, and the amount of power produced can increase sharply if the flow is faster or if more cylinders are added. A field of cylinders built on the seabed over a 1 kilometre by 1.5 kilometre area and the height of a two-storey house with a flow of just three knots, could generate enough power for around 100,000 homes. Just a few of the cylinders, stacked in a shorter ladder, could power an anchored ship or a lighthouse. Systems could be sighted on riverbeds or suspended in the ocean. The scientists behind the technology, which has been developed in research funded by the US government, say that generating power in this way would potentially cost only around 3.5 pence per kilowatt hour, compared to about 4.5 pence for wind energy and between 10 pence and 31 pence for solar power. They say the technology would require up to 50 times less ocean acreage than wave power generation. The system conceived by scientists at the University of Michigan is called Vivace, or vortex-induced vibrations for aquatic clean energy. Michael Benitzis, a professor of naval architecture at the university, said it was based on the changes in water speed that are caused when a current flows past an obstruction. Eddies or vortices formed in the water flow can move objects up and down or left and right. This is a totally new method of extracting energy from water flow, said Mr Benitzis. Fish curve their bodies to glide between the vortices shed by the bodies of the fish in front of them. Their muscle power alone could not propel them through the water at the speed they go, so they ride in each other's wake. Such vibrations, which were first observed 500 years ago by Leonardo da Vinci in the form of aeolian tones, can cause damage to structures built in water, like docks and oil rigs. But Mr Benitzis added, we enhance the vibrations and harness this powerful and destructive force in nature. If we could harness 0.1% of the energy in the ocean, we could support the energy needs of 15 billion people. In the English Channel, for example, there is a very strong current, so you could produce a lot of power. 
Because the parts only oscillate slowly, the technology is likely to be less harmful to aquatic wildlife than dams or water turbines. And as the installations can be positioned far below the surface of the sea, there would be less interference with shipping, recreational boat users, fishing and tourism. The engineers are now deploying a prototype device in the Detroit River, which has a flow of less than two knots. Their work, funded by the US Department of Energy and the US Office of Naval Research, is published in the current issue of the Quarterly Journal of Offshore Mechanics and Arctic Engineering. And at this point, I'd like to look at some more customs using the book Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things. And this one's entitled Marriage Bands, 8th Century Europe. During European feudal times, all public announcements concerning death, taxes or births were called bands, B-A-N-N-S. Today we use the term exclusively for an announcement that two people propose to marry. The interpretation began as a result of an order by Charlemagne, King of the Franks, who on Christmas Day in AD 800 was crowned Emperor of the Romans, marking the birth of the Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne, with a vast region to rule, had a practical medical reason for instituting marriage bans. Among rich and poor alike, a child's parentage was not always clear. An extramarital indiscretion could lead to a half-brother and half-sister marrying, and frequently did. Charlemagne, alarmed by the high rate of sibling marriages and the subsequent genetic damage to the offspring, issued an edict throughout his unified kingdom. All marriages were to be publicly proclaimed at least seven days prior to the ceremony. To avoid consanguinity between the prospective bride and groom, any person with information that the man and woman were related as brother or sister or as half-siblings was ordered to come forth. The practice proved so successful that it was widely endorsed by all faiths. And from the bbc.co.uk website, an article by Julian Siddle. The world must tackle space threat. Professor Richard Crowther's comments came as a group of space experts called for a coordinated science-led response to the asteroid threat. The Association of Space Explorers, or the ASE, says missions to intercept asteroids will need global approval. The United Nations will meet in February to discuss the issue. In the ASC report, the group of scientists and former astronauts point to the historical record to highlight the dangers of asteroids. An impact 65 million years ago may have wiped out the dinosaurs, and the Tunguska impact in 1908 produced a 2,000 square kilometre fire in Siberia, big enough to engulf a city the size of New York. They say the next major threatening event could occur in less than 20 years. 
asteroid Apophis, is due to pass close to the Earth, and analyses suggest a 1 in 45,000 chance of collision. An impact by Apophis would generate the equivalent of a 500 megaton blast, at least 100 times more powerful than the Siberian event. Professor Crowther of Britain's Science and Technology Facilities Council, the STFC, is the chair of the UN Working Group on Near-Earth Objects. He says the threat needs to be taken seriously. The issue is it's a single event potentially causing a large number of casualties, he told BBC News. The new UN broadly agrees that action is necessary, though what form this should take is still under discussion. Professor Crowther welcomed the ASC report and said it would be discussed by the UN action team tasked with coming up with a plan when they meet next February. A lot of what's in the report is consistent with what we've been suggesting anyway. There needs to be effective scientific coordination, enough observatory time and people looking in the right place at the right time. The document says most asteroids entering the Earth's atmosphere are small and burn up before reaching the surface. But it is the larger ones, perhaps 200 metres or more across, that would need to be deflected away from a collision course with Earth. The researchers propose several ways of doing this, the most extreme methods being to crash a spacecraft into the asteroid to knock it off course or to set off a nuclear explosion. They say the earlier the threat is dealt with, the less drastic the course of action need be. Professor Crowther says the natural forces of gravity can be used to deflect asteroids in many situations. We can use the natural attraction of a probe to one of the bodies to slowly pull the object away. He says if done at sufficient distance from the Earth, the orbit of an asteroid can be changed slightly to take it away from a collision path. ASC proposed combining scientific monitoring and research with a global political strategy. Professor Crowther says the scientific consensus is already broadly in place, but political consensus may take longer. We have to decide on a political framework, who's going to act and under what authority. That's clearly a role for the UN within the next two to three years. The key is to get it done before it's needed when people are much more responsible, rational and objective. And continuing on with the astronomical theme, an amateur astronomer captures dawn of the universe from Back Garden Observatory. An amateur astronomer has captured the dawn of the universe from a Back Garden Portaloo Observatory in Hampshire in the south of England. And this is a story by John Bingham. Stretching millions, even billions of light years into space, this is not the usual view one might expect from the back of a house. Yet, these extraordinary images show what Greg Parker, an amateur astronomer, was able to record with an 11-inch telescope in his garden in the New Forest. 
While some husbands chose to relax with a radio in their garden shed, the 54-year-old engineering professor makes nightly visits to a small white-domed observatory to gaze at the stars. Nicknamed the Port-a-Loo by his wife, and with more than a passing resemblance to a swing-topped rubbish bin, the fibreglass structure sits wedged into the decking on his patio. But it has enabled him to capture images to rival even those from NASA telescopes, and his photographs have now been published in a new book, Space Vistas. One star-like quasar he caught on camera through his reflecting telescope is just a shade under 12 billion light-years away. That's almost at the beginning of the whole universe, he remarked casually. Many of the images are the result of hundreds, even thousands of separate exposures, each taking between one minute and 20 minutes. They were taken with a specialised digital camera, which is cooled down to allow for longer exposures, bolted to the telescope. He then emailed each picture to Noel Caboni, an expert in astrophotography based in Florida and co-author of the book, who processed them to bring out details, such as the dust and gas clouds, known as nebula, which initially appear faint. The swirling yellow, red and blue disk of the Andromeda galaxy featured in the book took several years and was the result of more than 40 hours of exposures. That's a close one. It's only 2.2 million light-years away, he joked. In galactic terms, that's a day trip. Professor Parker, whose full-time job is teaching at the Southampton University, describes astronomy as a hobby dating back to childhood. I had a telescope when I was eight or nine, he said. But when I was 12, my parents wanted to see New Zealand, so we spent a couple of years in New Zealand. When you see what real dark skies are like without light pollution, it triggers something. Among his admirers is Sir Patrick Moore, presenter of the BBC's The Sky at Night. The pictures are of real scientific value, and they are also works of art, Sir Patrick wrote in the foreword to the book. You will enjoy them, and you will learn a great deal from them, as I did. Despite his success, Professor Parker has no plans to give up the academic life. When your hobby becomes your job, it can sometimes lose its appeal, so it is probably a good idea to keep it as an obsession, he said. And another story that has an astronomical origin. Supersonic plumes of water erupt from Saturn's moon, raising hopes of micro-life under the surface. And this comes from the dailymail.co.uk website. Huge plumes of water vapour and ice particles are spewing from Saturn's moon Enceladus at supersonic speeds, scientists report. When the Cassini spacecraft flew through a gigantic geyser of dust and gas close to the surface of Enceladus, it collected samples of ice and gas. Astronomers say the plumes may be erupting from an underground ocean, which would make Enceladus the third place in the solar system suspected to support life, even if only microbial organisms. There are only three places in the solar system we know or suspect to have liquid water near the surface. Earth, Jupiter's moon Europa, and now Saturn's Enceladus, Joshua Colwell, one of the researchers at the University of Central Florida, said. Water is a basic ingredient for life, and there are certain implications there, he added. 
images taken by the Cassini spacecraft in 2005 revealed huge geysers shooting from fissures in the south pole of Enceladus, reminiscent of the famed Old Faithful at Yellowstone National Park in the United States, but on a grand scale. But the latest mission suggests that the gas and dust are spewing at more than 1,300 miles per hour, faster than sound, making the case that Saturn is hiding a reservoir of liquid water. Data from Cassini's ultraviolet imaging spectrograph instrument, a high-tech imaging instrument, suggested that cracks extend below the surface and act as nozzles that channel water vapour from an underground liquid water reservoir. Focusing the instrument at a distant flickering star also showed that the water vapours, which intermittently blocked its starlight, form narrow jets as they blast into space. We think liquid water is necessary for life, and there is more evidence that there is liquid water there, said lead researcher Candace Hansen of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. You also need energy, you need nutrients, you need organics. It looks like the pieces are there. Whether or not there's actually life, of course, we can't say. And our final article today comes from the damninteresting.com website and this is one from a couple of years ago and it's entitled Germany's Pleasure Dome and it's written by Alan Bellows on April the 7th, 2006. In the northeastern portion of Germany, about 36 miles southeast of Berlin, a passenger train and shuttle service delivers men, women and children to the door of one of the most voluminous structures on the planet. They arrive throughout the day and night, every day of the year. The enormous dome stands 350 feet tall and encloses 194 million cubic feet of space. It was originally commissioned by cargo lifter AG as a hangar for their heavy lift airship concept, but their dirigible was never developed and the company went bankrupt in 2002. The following year, Malaysian Tanyong Company purchased the gigantic building and filled it with something never before seen in northeast Germany tropical paradise. Tropical Islands Resort is an artificial exotic island environment which includes a rainforest, beaches, artificial sunlight, palm trees, orchids and ambient birdsong. A large portion of the south side is made up of transparent panels, allowing natural sunlight to help brighten the interior during the day. 
The internal temperature is always kept at a comfortable 77 to 82 degrees Fahrenheit with 50 to 60% air humidity year-round, regardless of the weather outside. The resort's builders have engineered what amounts to a miniature ecosystem. About 80% of the resort's 66,000 square metres of floor space is used for green space, which includes more than 500 species of plants, including palm trees, orchids and other tropical vegetation. Water from the pools is reclaimed to water the plant life, which grows in a rich custom-made soil made up of sand, organic waste, clay and tree bark. The dome's transparent panels are also UV permeable, exposing the plants to natural sunlight and allowing the building to operate as a giant greenhouse. Some have said that the interior's high humidity causes water condensation on the inside of the dome, which collects for some time before finally falling. This produces light, spontaneous rain showers on occasion, adding to the ambience of the place. The resort includes a Balinese lagoon with whirlpools and a waterfall, a South Sea with an 8,000 square metre sand beach, a tropical village and a rainforest section with winding walkways. It offers all of the benefits of a Caribbean cruise without ever leaving port, including the tourist-tailored stereotyped culture. You can't beat that with a palm frond. If you happen to be in Europe already, the price of a train ticket and admission is probably considerably less money than flying to a real tropical island. Of course, a genuine island offers blue skies and full sunlight in place of grey girders and perpetual overcast, but this place seems to make for a decent substitute. Even if artificial tropical paradise isn't your cup of tea, it may be worth seeing just to marvel at the magnitude of the structure and the engineering. The dome can host up to 7,000 visitors at once and has a staff of about 500. The resort offers restaurants, shopping, tanning, stage entertainment and overnight camping on Paradise Beach. Admission is about 18.5 euros on weekdays and 23.5 euros on weekends, which includes an unlimited stay including all shows. Much like a real tropical island, Tropical Islands Resort is open around the clock every day of the year. They also offer two other services which make for a brilliant combination. A daycare centre and seven fully stocked bars. Sign me up. Hello. 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 Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Well, welcome to the World Wide Weird, everyone, and today's first article lends a new meaning to the phrase, a boob job. A men's magazine loses 130,000 inflatable breasts. A men's magazine has lost a shipment of 130,000 inflatable breasts en route to Australia, and this comes from the telegraph.co.uk website. The breasts worth £100,000 were planned to be a free gift in Ralph magazine, 
but vanished before arriving at their destination. A spokeswoman said the container left docks in Beijing two weeks ago, but turned up empty in Sydney this week. The magazine has put out an alert to shipping authorities, but the breasts need to turn up in the next 48 hours to make the January issue. Ralph editor Santini Pintado urged anyone with information to contact the magazine, saying, unless Somali pirates have stolen them, it's difficult to explain where they are. If anyone finds any washed up on a beach, please let us know. We want our boobs back. The Maritime Safety Authority said it had no information on any lost consignment. A British rubbish man who found £10,000 in shredded banknotes has been told he can keep the cash if he pieces it together. Graham Hill spotted the remains of 10 and £20 notes six months ago. Police have now told him that no one has claimed the money and it is his. A driving theory test on 400 Malaysian driving instructors resulted in 65% of them failing. At a seminar in Perak, 396 instructors were asked to take the exam and only 35% passed, said State Road Department Director Mohammed Yassir Mastakmin. A man who eats 10 Mars bars a day has claimed a lack of sugar prompted him to attack his girlfriend when she wore big Bridget Jones-style knickers instead of a G-string. Marco Feller, 38, from Cornwall, admitted to two common assaults. His sentencing was adjourned. Inspirational Pig His image adorns advertising hoardings and his name has become a t-shirt slogan. He is Strong-Willed Pig, a porker who sprang to fame after surviving for 36 days in the rubble of China's huge earthquake in May. As winter bears down on human survivors living in makeshift homes, the hardy pig has become a symbol of tenacity. Strong-willed pig receives dozens and sometimes hundreds of visitors each day at the Jianshuan Museum, set up to commemorate the 8.0 magnitude earthquake that killed about 90,000 people in southwestern Sichuan province. T-shirts are decorated with a drawing of a plump hog and bear the words, I am fat, I am strong-willed. And finally, a story from Tokyo. Boy, they do some strange things over there. A Japanese man has been arrested for releasing hundreds of beetle larvae inside a moving express train to try to scare female passengers. I wanted to see women get scared and shake their legs, police quoted 35-year-old Manabu Mizuta as saying. He was arrested by an officer after releasing the creatures on the Kian line in Osaka prefecture. He would go close to women on the train, any woman, and pour out the worms from containers, a police spokesman said. Mr. Mazuta had 10 containers in his backpack, estimated to contain 3,600 worms, police said.
And what's that? I hear you calling for more, more of the worldwide weird. Well, it just so happens that I've found one that may interest you. A woman calls police after her husband, 82, takes Viagra. An 82-year-old Italian man who took a Viagra pill scared his wife so much she called the police. Giovanni Di Stefano from Palermo was so excited his wife thought he would have a heart attack and dialed 999. The police didn't do anything, but their presence had the desired effect. He lost interest in his love life pretty quickly, said a family friend. Terrified wife Carla, 69, told police, He is 82 years old, and so I thought so much love could have lethal consequences. Oh, poor old bugger, should have left him alone. Well, that concludes episode 58 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you'd like to give us some feedback, please do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email at paulrex at paulrex.com. And much of today's music came from the Podcast Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. Well, that's all for this week. It's bye for now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.